believe it or not, we have reached our final episode of 2020. <laughs> I can't even say it. <laughs> oh my god, it's over. It's Mike Wall, and you're listening to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. Believe it or not, we have reached our final episode of 2020. I still plan on doing my episode responses to the final two episodes of Star Trek Discovery's third season, but those will drop in early January. Then, and I'm so excited to announce this, Dr. Aaron McDonald and Professor Mohammed Noor, the science consultants for the Star Trek universe, will join us on Strange New Worlds to help us recap the whole of Season 3 and especially the science in it. I know it's been a difficult year for all of us, and... If there's anything to be learned from 2020, it's the importance of both science and Star Trek. Now, because 2020 seems like it's been forever, I sometimes forget that we've received three whole new seasons of Star Trek in this calendar year alone. Picard, Lower Decks, and Discovery. I know several of my friends have expressed to me the sentiment that new Star Trek is what's getting them through life right now, and I couldn't agree more. The delightful surprise that was Lower Decks was exactly what I needed to get through the monotony of late summer and laugh my way into the strangest fall term ever. And the thrill of discovery is totally defrosting what would otherwise be a frigid, lonely winter. We owe everyone over at CBS a big thanks and a big round of applause for all of their excellent work. Now, on the scientific side, researchers around the world were able to devise multiple coronavirus vaccines in record time. Traditionally, vaccines can take years to develop, often a decade or longer. But we've just witnessed the creation of several effective COVID vaccines in under one year. These vaccines are under mass production and are already being distributed to healthcare workers. No, healthcare heroes. And soon, the general population providing us a way out of this dreadful pandemic. At the same time, scientific research into how COVID-19 spreads has demonstrated that wearing masks and physical distancing of six feet or more apart can significantly reduce transmission. These are all things we still need to do while we wait for vaccines to reach the majority of the public. Can you imagine, just for a moment, living in a time before microbiology and modern medicine? A time before we even knew what a virus was? People would be dying all around you, and you'd have no idea why. I know I'd be scared silly. But through the power of science, we not only know exactly what's going on, 
we also have the tools to defeat this deadly disease. And those tools range from a humble face mask to the injection of a clever strand of ribonucleic acid that'll train your immune system to combat the coronavirus. There's no more brilliant an example of the fact that knowledge is power. Let's make sure we put it to good use. Besides the biomedical field, science has continued to roll on in other areas too. I can't keep track of all of the new developments myself, so that's why I so often turn to my science journalism colleagues to keep abreast of all of the recent research. Today, we're doing just that. It's my pleasure to welcome freelance science writer and molecular engineer Shi-En Kim back to Strange New Worlds. We last heard from her in episode 90, where Kim, a former NCAA fencer, helped me break down fencing scenes in Star Trek. But today, she'll be telling us about two articles that she penned in 2020. The first, titled To Study Aging, Scientists Are Looking to Outer Space, was published in National Geographic, and the second, titled This Robot Can Rap, Really, was published in Scientific American. When I read these two pieces, which I've linked for you in the show notes, what immediately struck me was how these modern scientific advancements that Kim reported on relate to things that we see in Star Trek. So, without further ado, let's hit it. Kim, it's so great to have you back on Strange New Worlds. Hi, am I here to talk about fencing again? <laughs> no, today we're not going to talk about fencing, but we're going to talk about two other really cool subjects that are closely related to awesome science and technology that we see in Star Trek. Let's talk about your National Geographic article first. And we'll start with the immediate Star Trek connection, which is that all of the ships in Star Trek, which is very far future, you know, hundreds of years in the future, these ships are equipped with artificial gravity plating that keeps everything at one Earth gravity or one G. And they also have deflector shields and navigational deflectors that essentially keep harmful radiation from influencing the ship and also from damaging the crew members of the ship. Now, unfortunately, today, real-life astronauts don't have either of those luxuries, artificial gravity or fancy deflector shields. So what does this mean for their bodies? So you're absolutely right. When an astronaut travels to space, an astronaut doesn't have the benefit of gravity and protection from radiation as we all experience on Earth. And that's pretty damaging for the body. A microgravity environment and high doses of radiation in outer space, are, it turns out pretty damaging to our health. Our bodies have evolved for many, many years in Earth's environment. So any deviation from that environment completely throws our biology out of whack. Without gravity, the fluids in our body flow very differently. Our fluids redistribute and start to permeate upwards towards our brain. And in the end, our brains even change shape. In a microgravity environment, there's less load or stress on our bones 
on our heart because we don't have to withstand the direction of gravity. And that means our bodies just get lazy. Our bones weaken, our muscles weaken. Even our heart doesn't have to pump against the flow of gravity and our heart shrinks. For ionizing radiation, on the other hand, the damages that it induces is more chemical. It pretty much breaks some of our chemicals in our body or, or cells in our body. Um, one particularly harmful aspect is the damage to our DNA that it induces, causing DNA mutation. And some of you might know that leads to higher incidences of cancer. So I could go on and on about how space is not very nice to the human body, but there's so many factors in play and it pretty much affects every single cell on every level. So in this National Geographic piece, you wrote that space provides a unique environment to learn about biological aging. And that's something that impacts every human being on Earth. You know, whether or not you go to the International Space Station, you will age. So how does that space environment provide such a unique environment to learn about aging? And what experiments have we designed to help us learn more about aging by performing science in space? Outer space does not actually age a person, but the effects it induces in the body is remarkably similar to aging. So we can draw a lot of parallels and learn about the mechanisms that affect the body. And we can hopefully learn something about how we age on Earth. So the study of how humans adapt to space and aging can cross-fertilize each other. As I mentioned, just the way that our muscles weaken, for example, if we can learn the pathway of how that happens in space, we can perhaps come up with drugs to target those pathways, and those drugs might be able to work back on Earth. And another unique thing about space is that the aging-like effects it induces is at an accelerated level. So if we want to study aging on Earth, what we would have to do is use animal models, animals with a shorter lifespan, so we don't have to wait so long for them to age. Or we can do it in old humans and somewhat younger humans, but then every human's different. In space, however, you can study astronauts or you can send animal models and it takes much shorter of a time for them to age. So you can study pretty much the aging-like process in a, the same human. And so you don't have to account for the biological variation between subject to subject. So when we go up to the International Space Station, we are the experiment, but you also mentioned some animal models. So what are some of the animals that we use besides human beings, of course, to study these aging-like processes? There is quite a number of animals that have made it to the space station, and maybe it's quite easy to be jealous of them. Um, <laughs> the animal that I wrote about was mice. There have been worms, plants even, insects. In the early days, there were dogs and monkeys, but sadly, none of them made the return trip. And what exactly have we learned about aging-like processes from studying the changes in human biology and in the biology of these animals? There's so many individual studies. Um, the one I wrote about was how this group of researchers at Eli Lilly, a private pharmaceutical company, was developing a drug to target muscle atrophy and they did that study in mice, and they realized that by administering the drug, these mice did not lose muscle so fast. 
And the studies that they did included testing how strongly these mice gripped uh, an instrument in outer space. And they also looked at their muscles and did analyses and did lots of imaging. And indeed, it confirmed that this drug is very promising towards reducing muscle atrophy and may perhaps not just astronauts, but hopefully the terrestrial masses back here on Earth who suffer from the same condition. That's so interesting. So to recap, they brought mice to the space station, and then they measured how strong the grips of the little mice paws were on an instrument. And by separating the mice into a group that got this treatment and the mice that didn't receive the treatment, they found that the grips of the mice that did receive the treatment remained stronger for longer in space. Mm-hmm. And there was also a controlled mice group that remained here on Earth. They were the less fortunate or more fortunate ones, depending on how you look at it. <laughs> yeah, that's so fascinating. And it's really interesting for me to note that there was actually an episode of the original Star Trek series called The Deadly Years, where the crew experiences an enhanced aging rate. And in this episode, aging was induced by the flyby of a comet that emitted some very strange radiation. And luckily, just in the nick of time, the trio of Mr. Spock, Dr. Janet Wallace, and Nurse Christine Chapel devised an anti-aging drug that reversed the processes of this damaging radiation. And it sounds like the experiments that are being conducted on the space station, especially the one you just told me about, is sort of going along the way of devising some kind of drug or treatment to slow down aging. Maybe not reverse it the way it magically was reversed in the episode. I think that's a little bit ludicrous. But do you think that a miracle drug that really dramatically slows down aging can result or will result from this line of space station research? That's a very interesting question. And there's one subtlety I didn't address in my article. Yes, it's just true that some astronauts, once they come back from outer space, some of their aging-like symptoms reverse, but not all of them. In particular, symptoms associated with radiation that induces chemical damage in our bodies. That is probably less likely to be reversed compared to physical effects. For example, microgravity. You don't necessarily damage any of the cells for too long, but things shift a bit, fluids flow differently, but when you come back to Earth, then they revert back to normal. So will that be a miracle drug? In my opinion, no. Aging is such a varied process and it affects different parts of the bodies in different ways. So I do not think that there can be a drug that can address all the symptoms of aging or take care of astronaut health in just one pill, in just one go. But there can be different kinds of treatment for different aspects of aging, assuming that process can be reversed or can be slowed down in the first place. That totally makes sense. Yeah, there's so many different processes at work in our body, different components of our body at different scales too, from the molecular to the organ scale. Uh, you know, there's many orders of magnitude in between that, um, you know, age differently and for different reasons. Uh, I want to switch to a philosophical question now, which is that, you know, aging, although it can be sad to see certain physical attributes go, aging is a natural process of life. And getting older definitely opens up new perspectives and new life experiences. So in your opinion, 
should we try to slow down aging? That's a very interesting question. But in my opinion, the study of aging benefits human health in general. It's not just a matter of how long we live, but how well we, we live. And you probably know among some of your friends or people you see, there are some people who seem to have, be afflicted with disabilities or illnesses. Some people exhibit early aging symptoms. For example, they have a weaker immune system compared to the average normal healthy human. And so we're doing these aging studies to help people like them, not just old people, but people with a body that seems to not get the average person's biological timeline. So I am skeptical with how long we can actually push the bounds of the human lifetime. But overall, these aging studies would really benefit human health in general, young people or old people, just the average person. I love that. Yeah. To increase the quality of life, not necessarily the total amount of life. Yeah, that's wonderful. Wrapping up this article, given what you've learned about space's effect on the human body, do you think you would ever go to space if you were given the option? Space is very inimical to the body. Scientists hate to judge whether space is good or bad. But when I was writing this article, I was surprised by how, how much our biology just completely goes haywire because of outer space. Personally, I wouldn't mind if I never got the chance to go to space. For all those people who want to go to outer space, NASA has pretty good guidelines on how to protect yourself in outer space and the, length of, the duration length of your mission. So please don't let my article stop you from achieving your dreams. But before you go to outer space, you should be aware of the effects of space exposure to your body and if you still want to go, humanity in general would really be grateful for the sacrifices to your health that you are making to advance science and technology. So thank you very much. <laughs> Let's switch gears to your Scientific American article, which was all about a wrapping robot. So the Star Trek connection here is that in Star Trek The Next Generation, Lieutenant Commander Data, who is an android, is not just a brilliant scientist and engineer, but he has many creative pursuits as well. Alongside his professional duties as ship's operations officer, he spends his free time painting and composing poetry and is very musically talented, playing the violin, the oboe, the guitar, and on occasion, even singing. Never saw the sun shining so bright. Never saw things going so right Noticing the days hurrying by When you're in love, my how they fly Oh, blue skies, smiling at me Now, you wrote a piece in Scientific American about a real-life robot named Shimon who can battle rap. Uh, so in order to do that, Shimon actually needs to listen to and understand a real-life person. And then it needs to go and create something to follow that real-life person's utterances. So can you tell me a little bit about the science and the technology that makes Shimon possible? Yeah, 
the short answer would be deep learning, which is in short the enhanced human-like ability to take large amounts of data and process it and learn something from it and produce something that's similar based on this training set. So Shimon first learns how to rap by learning from different large chunks of text. These texts can be lyrics from other established rappers like Eminem, Jay-Z, or they can be texts from even literary works like Jane Austen or Shakespeare. Once it gets a feel of how these words sound, then it starts to generate words and texts on its own. And then it cherry picks words from these texts that it generates into its lyrics. And the unique thing about Shimon is that the way it encodes information or the way it processes these words that it learns is not at the semantic level, meaning not just at what each individual word means, but instead there's an additional layer of learning on how the word sounds. And that's how it breaks down how each word is pronounced. And then it can select lyrics based on the pronunciation. And that's how you encode alliteration, rhyming, beat, into the lyrics that Shimon eventually generates. So to me, there are two unique aspects in the lyrics that Shimon generates. First, it's, it's able to have a sort of a rap conversation with a human about not just on the same topic, such as the weather. If you rap about the weather, it might comment about rain or the sun. It also does it in a way that sounds aesthetically pleasing by selecting words based on how it sounds. And the more unique thing about Shimon's ability is that it does all this processing in real time. So it can produce a comeback within seven seconds. And the researchers that I wrote about, they claim that Shimon can be even speedier if you use better hardware, such as a more powerful GPU. Wow. So to recap, for my own understanding, basically Shimon has studied the works of famous artists ranging from rappers to Jane Austen, and not only understands the meaning of words in that certain words, like you mentioned, weather words tend to go together, but also the sounds of those words and which sounds tend to go together so that it can come up with a next line of this battle rap that makes sense and also sounds good. Yeah, supposedly Shimon has received pretty positive feedback. Shimon has also received requests for help by other writers or lyricists who have faced writer's block. But I want to point out one one thing that the researchers who designed Shimon want to emphasize. Shimon is not meant to replace the human. It's meant to be a working partner because Shimon admittedly sounds nothing like a human and it's intended that it never will. So if you could have a collaborator or partner you can engage in conversations with who can write lyrics in a way that you can't find in any other person on earth, surely you can produce something different that you would have been able to produce with anyone else. Yeah, that's so interesting because I feel like one pervasive fear about robots in society in general is that they're coming to take our jobs. And you actually spoke to a professional human rapper named Riss Langston about Shimon. Is Riss Langston concerned about Shimon taking his job? Um, Not exactly. He is skeptical that Shimon can even capture the complexities of human life in his performance. And that's a unique aspect of humans that robots perhaps 
may never fully learn to emulate to a satisfactory level. Sure, it depends on what data set that you've trained Shimon on, but human life is so complex that not a single text or literary piece or song can fully capture. So in my opinion, and in Mrs. opinion, humans have that advantage over deep learning robots. One thing that's really cool about being human, if I dare say so myself, is that there are moments of serendipity and accidents that can produce something pretty unexpectedly good. So one thing about the creative process is sometimes when you start something, you don't know where the journey will take you and you don't know how the final product will look like. So according to Riss, when I spoke with him, some of the music that he produced were born out of accidents. Sometimes when you do a recording, you forget to change something and then the music sounds differently from what you intended, but hey, it sounds good and you can actually use it in your final piece. For a robot, basically it's pretty much, it usually does what you program it to do and there are fewer surprises there. And human error, which can produce good music, you might not be able to produce that in a robot because a robot can't make mistakes and maybe it can't do something really out of the blue or creative because it doesn't make any mistakes. So do you think that Shimon is truly creative then if it can't make mistakes? And do you think that we can one day create artificial intelligence that can reach true creativity? Are robots really creative? That's a good question. Um, There's actually a test that attempts to qualitatively measure robot creativity, and that's called the Lovelace test. The way that test works is that if a robot produces something that its human creator has no knowledge of how that came about, then the robot is creative. The researchers who created Shimon did not really delve into that kind of worms. But again, I want to emphasize the question of this robot being creative is it's not about whether it is creative, but rather how much more creative can it make me? And that's a more meaningful question to ask. Because in the end, it's not a competition and the researchers do not want people to think that way. But of course, we all marvel at how almost human-like these robots can become by using these concepts of deep learning. Can robots ever learn to make mistakes? I don't know, but I do feel that it's exciting what the future holds in terms of how much more advanced robots can be. Yeah, I wonder if something that makes humans humans, or at least humans distinct from artificial intelligence, is our ability to make mistakes and learn from those mistakes and use those mistakes to drive novelty and creation of truly new things that you couldn't have like theorized about in a logical way, that you couldn't have extrapolated from the current training data set, but are completely new because they were a mistake. It's almost like how evolution, uh, parts of evolution really just rely on the random mutation of genes to create new sequences. A lot of those are crap and end up killing you, but the ones that actually make a new gene that is beneficial to the organism will get carried on and propagated. And, And so maybe the trick to taking Shimon and making Shimon into data is to allow Shimon to make mistakes, but then also somehow giving Shimon the the ability to interpret a mistake and recognize that that mistake was good rather than bad. I think that's where the challenge lies. And I'm not sure if you have any thoughts on that. This is not relevant to my article per se, but there's actually a programming concept of how a computer learns. It's by creating 
two different entities that sort of compete with each other in a way. And so one of them creates something and the other one creates another and then they compete. And in the end, this intense competition produces something that's better than anything it started out with. So that's not a mistake per se, but these human struggles of like competition, self-correctingness, what you also see in nature, translated to a robot, it really makes them better. The last thing I want to ask you about is how you said to the researchers, it's not necessarily how good can Shimon be, but how good can it make people by interacting with Shimon? Um, so was Shimon designed to essentially improve human life? And if so, how? So Shimon is so far only a musical robot. Is it supposed to improve the average everyday person's life? Shimon is probably not there yet because it's still just one robot. But can it improve a musician's experience? Absolutely. It's always nice to collaborate with someone. It's nice to jam out together. Shimon not only raps, but also sings, plays different kinds of instruments, but not in real time. Only the rap function is real time. But having someone who could be part of your band, that's pretty fun. And I think the existence of Shimon plays into this human innate human need to constantly create something and be creative, create art, for example. Not everyone's a, a photographer or a filmmaker, but we've seen an explosion of TikTok videos, Instagram posts, Facebook posts, blogs, where people express themselves and be creative. And that's a whole industry. Having Shimon feeds into that culture and just speaks to humans' need to constantly create. And Shimon would probably improve the accessibility to music if Shimon's programming or Shimon's existence, this physical existence, could be made more accessible and more numerous. Right now, there's only one Shimon, but hopefully we'll see more of Shimon and perhaps its offspring. Uh-oh, this starts to sound like that Next Generation episode where they contemplate disassembling data for the purpose of trying to create more datas um, to serve on all Federation ships. And I think, <laughs> I, I don't think that there will be any ethical or moral quandaries about creating more Shimon's, but it does, it does remind me a little bit of that in one day when the Shimon's of our future gain a level of creativity and human likeness and potentially even sentience, we might have to wrestle with some of those ethical quandaries. I don't believe that they'll ever replace a human, and that perhaps will make us appreciate humanity and human-generated art even more. Mm, that's an interesting point. And I do really appreciate the idea that it's part of this human drive to create and create and create more and more and more to the point that we want our creations to create art and music themselves. True. Shimon is very versatile and Shimon can rap and sing and write, but you as the human can dictate how you want to engage Shimon. For example, the professor who created Shimon, Jill Weinberg, he is a jazz musician and he's never written songs, but he was able to produce an album for the first time because Shimon provided the songwriting capabilities and wrote the lyrics. Um, maybe you're an established rapper and you're so good that no one wants to rap with you. Why don't you take on Shimon? Maybe you want to jam in a band 
and you want to just play bass and have someone be the star of the show, Shimon can help you. There are different ways to engage Shimon, and I think sure Shimon has can be a one person, a one robot band, but at the same time, it doesn't have to be. I think humans still have control over how they want to engage Shimon and you, Shimon, to the best of the abilities to make you as the person creative. You can still be the star of the show. It's not a competition. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on Strange New Worlds and relaying this amazing science that's going on in the world. Um, it was a pleasure to have you back on, Kim. Thank you. It was fun. That was science writer and molecular engineer Shien Kim on how space can teach us about biological aging and how advances in artificial intelligence have created a robot that can battle rap with a human being. Every day, we inch closer and closer to that Star Trek future. These two science stories show just that. But they don't only show a trajectory towards greater health and more elaborate computers, they also invite us to grapple with deep questions, like whether aging is inherently a bad thing, or at what point does an army of Shimon's become a race of robots? And they also make us think about how scientists' intentions may not always equal their consequences. One of the best things that Star Trek does is provoke the imagination to reckon with questions that don't have easy answers. And that's how I know that Star Trek as a storytelling medium will continue to live long and prosper through 2021 and far, far beyond. Hey, if you've enjoyed listening to Strange New Worlds this year, please do me a favor and leave a rating or a review or just tell a friend about the show. I'll talk to you all again in the new year. Until then, see you out there. What's your title that I should identify you as in the podcast? Oh, my T1. <laughs> I mean, like, I'm Mike Wong, an astrobiologist and planetary scientist at the University of Washington. How should I describe you? Oh, my T1. I don't get what your confusion is. Mm-hmm.